Welcome to the Essential Church Podcast. Our goal is to strengthen and equip church and ministry leaders just like you through practical and theological discussions about some of the most pressing and important issues facing the local church today. We feature conversations with members of our team here at New Life Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado, as well as interviews with authors and thinkers from around the world. You can follow The Essential.Church on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, watch episodes on our YouTube channel, and also subscribe to our podcast via iTunes and Spotify, where you'll find a full archive of previous conversations. And now, here is this week's episode of the Essential Church Podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast, an ongoing conversation about some of the most important issues facing the local church today. I'm your host, Andrew Arndt, and today I'm going to take you to a conversation that I had recently with Dr. Philip Carey. He's a PhD from Yale University, teaches at Eastern University. He's a theologian and a philosopher, specializes in Luther and Augustine studies. And he released this book uh, about 13 years ago. It's recently gone through a second edition uh, called Good News for Anxious Christians, 10 Practical Things You Don't Have to Do. And I read this book, I talk about it in the podcast, but I read this book not long ago at the prompting of a friend, and I found it to be one of the most liberating, joyful, and helpful books on just thinking clearly about what the good news of Jesus is and how we convey that to people that I'd read in a very long time. Uh, Phil and I have talked on Facebook a little bit. He wrote a commentary on the book of Jonah that I really liked a long time ago. And uh, so I reached out to him, asked if he'd be willing to talk, and he gratefully said yes. And we have a a wild conversation about some of the weird and unhelpful stuff we say in, in evangelical Christianity and how the gospel is better than all of that. Without further commentary from me, here's to the interview. Well, we're really happy to have on the program today uh, Dr. Philip Carey. Uh, Phil is a theologian and a professor of philosophy at Eastern University in St. David's, Pennsylvania, uh, specialist in Luther and Augustine studies. And this is from the bio on the website at Eastern University, and I'm ripping this straight from the bio because I loved it. And it actually says, this is like true to my experience of you, Phil, but it says, Dr. Carey loves learning things by reading old books. As far as he is concerned, the best old book is the Bible, because it contains the gospel of Jesus Christ. It always cheers him up to teach anything that has to do with the gospel. Consequently, he has written a theological commentary on the presence of the gospel in the book of Jonah. And as well, he has a little book based largely on conversations with his students, where he hopes to lure them into trusting the gospel, rather than applying a whole slew of practical ideas to their lives Unbiblical ideas that do little more than make them anxious. It turns out that the gospel of Christ tends to cheer them up to this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said, thanks be to God. <laughs> Phil, I get the feel you must, certainly you wrote that bio. Yes. Yes, I did. Yeah. <laughs> it's got your fingerprints all over it. Well, it's, it's a great point of departure to get our comment, our conversation started, Phil, because you talk in the bio there, you talk about that commentary on the book of Jonah and we were just talking yeah. off camera about how at New Life we preached through the book of Jonah a couple years ago, and a friend of mine recommended that I check out your commentary. And I had been reading Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics at the time, and there's this relentlessness in Barth to just like read all of Scripture through Jesus, which is what you did in that commentary. And I just went, this is a guy who's fascinated with the Bible, fascinated with the gospel, totally fascinated with Jesus, and he helped me as a preacher think more clearly about what my job was on mm-hmm. Sunday morning. So I sent you a little Facebook message, and you were kind enough to write back to me. 
And then, and this gets to what I want to talk with you about today, it might have been six or eight weeks ago, I was in a conversation with a friend about the challenges of pastoral ministry in our day, and he said to me, he goes, you know, Philip Carey has this book, and I've got it here with me today, called Good News for Anxious Christians, 10 Practical Things You Don't Have to Do. (laughs) And he said, if I had any book that could like summarize my philosophy of ministry, it would be this book. And I went, that is a profound statement for somebody to make. So I bought it, and I read through it, and I went, holy smokes, this thing is dead on. So, Phil, man, can you just talk to us for a second? Because I want to get into some of the content of this book, but talk to us about where this book, which now is 2010, I think is when it was released, so it's not new. But tell us where this... It, stri- it strikes me as very fresh, I'll just say that. But tell me where oh, it came cool. from. Well, yeah, there, there is a second edition now, so, so it's, it's had some legs. Um, it came, yeah, Good News for Anxious Christians um, came from anxious Christians. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was hanging around with a lot of anxious Christians, um, including my students, who are often very anxious about you know, the practical advice they'd been given about how to live the Christian life was making them anxious because, you know, you're supposed to follow the advice and it's supposed to transform your life. And you look around at your life and, it, you know, the practical advice, maybe you're not following as well as you should. And your life is not working out as well as it should. And what's wrong with your Christian life? And, and you know, is God in your life or not? And, you know, before you know it, if if the gospel is replaced by practical advice, yeah. before you know it, you're anxious about whether the practical advice is really working or whether you're doing it right. Right. You know? Why do you think, I mean, I want to ask you about this a little bit later, but I mean, why do you think there has been such a turn to practical advice in American evangelical Christianity? Well, part of it is because of anxious pastors. Yeah. Um, You know, pastors want to transform people's lives and so on. Yes. And and, and this is a good thing if if transformation means, you know, Christian formation. Yeah. but there's this odd mistake that we make, and it, it was diagnosed 1,500 years ago by St. Augustine, mm-hmm. where we think the way to get somebody to change their life is to tell them how to change their life. Well, that means you preach law, not gospel, right? Because law uh, is, is telling us what to do. Yep. Gospel is telling us what Christ does. Yep. And it turns out what really changes us is preaching the gospel of Christ. Yes. But the problem is that, that you have to actually trust Christ and the Holy Spirit to do the real work of transformation then. Yes, yes, right? yes, yes. Um, and, and that's a little scary. I, I Also, I think there is a kind of, well, a bad theology or ideology, really, that says you have to be relevant, you have to be practical. Mm-hmm. And that means you have to talk about what people are supposed to do, mm-hmm. which means you're supposed to preach law, not gospel, after all, right? right? Be practical, be relevant, make it all about me, 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 my life, my heart, my doings, what I'm supposed to do. It, it ends up being me-centered and works-centered yep. and therefore anxiety-producing. How much do you think consumerism has something to do with mm-hmm. this? That we live in this American consumerist ethos where it's like if you're going to have anything to offer, you've got to show how it's the the latest, the greatest, the best, the brightest, and the most effective. Oh, I think it's very consumerist. Um, What we have, I think, is churches that are trying to compete in a spiritual marketplace. Right. Where you're competing against, you know, lots of other spiritualities, Christian and otherwise. 
and you know various forms of hedonism and so on. Like, mm-hmm. what's your lifestyle choice? Well, the church gets into the market and says, we've got a, a nicer lifestyle than everyone else, right? Yeah. Um, and again, you, you try to make this appealing to people by making it quote-unquote relevant, um, and hopefully that will build up the numbers of the church, right. more people in the seats, more uh, bigger budget, right? And all that gives you the wrong kind of incentive, mm. right? Instead of giving people Christ— Mm-hmm. which is what the gospel does. You're trying to get them to live the kind of life where they're coming to church, you know, giving money to the church, behaving like nice Christians, and it makes you anxious if they're not. Yes. So you've got anxious pastors as well as anxious Christians, <laughs> and that's the result of consumerist Christianity. Yeah, well, I think it's a, I mean, it's bad theology plus a consumerist ethos, right, has gobbled yeah, us up. Right. We've given into law, we've, st- we've pivoted away from the gospel, and then we've said we have to stay relevant. We have to be competitive in the religious marketplace. And when That's you have right. those two things work, working together, you really have a perfect storm, don't you? Yes, you do. That's right. Okay, so your chapter titles. <laughs> this is one of the things I love the most about your book was just how you took dead aim at so many things that are just <laughs> there things with us in the church. And the chapter titles are really provocative. Uh, why you don't have to hear God's voice in your heart. Why you don't have to believe your intuitions are the Holy Spirit. Why you don't have to find God's will for your life, and so on and so forth. There are 10 of them just like that. And I want to drill into a couple of these just to give people a feel for what you're doing. So we'll start um, with the first one. What do you mean when you say you don't have to hear God's voice in your heart? Because we need to be led by the Lord. This is part of Mm -hmm. what it means to be a Christian, is that we're under the leadership and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But you're saying... You don't have to hear God's voice in your heart. What do you mean by that? Right. Well, I mean that we should listen to the Word of God. Um, and, the, you know, the, there is such a thing as a law of God. We should learn that. We should learn the Ten Commandments. But there's also the Gospel. We should believe that. And these are words of God that come to us from outside our own hearts. Mm-hmm. We can literally hear them with our ears. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas my anxious students... We're trying to listen for God's voice in their heart, which means not listening to a word that comes into their ears from some other voice, like the voice of someone preaching the gospel, but instead, they're trying to listen basically to their intuitions. They're trying to figure out which of the thoughts or intuitions or voices in their heart is really God. Um, Let me give you an example that I used right at the beginning of the book. Um, I was flabbergasted the first time um, a, a student spoke up in class, and she said, yeah, God told me to break up with my boyfriend. And I'm thinking, how does that work, right? And I tried to imagine it, and here's what I imagined. Imagine um, a young woman coming back to her dorm room, and she's talking to herself and saying, um, I love my boyfriend. He's so great. He takes such good care of me. He's always watching over me. He's always uh, controlling me. He's always making sure that I don't ever get out of his sight. He's always controlling me. Um, 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 I have a bad feeling about this. Yeah. Right? So you've got some of the loud voices in your heart, right? I love my boyfriend. And then you've got some of the quiet voices, like, I have a bad feeling about this. Now, that quiet voice is your own voice. It's wiser than the loud voice. Yeah. And you ought to be listening to it, yeah. right? And some of these wise voices in your heart will be part of the shape of your heart if your heart is trained mm. by the word of God in Holy Scripture 
right? Um, and, and that's where intuitions come from, is the formation of the heart. But it's still your own voice. Yep. And it was a really sad thing to think this young woman, the only way she could break up with a manipulative and controlling boyfriend, right. if I've got the scenario right, right, is by taking the wisest voice in her own heart and saying, that's God. Right. Right? Because she couldn't really believe that she herself had a right to say no to a manipulative and controlling boyfriend. Can I say and something here? Uh, that section really got me, and I actually pulled a quote right from that example, where you said that the sad thing is not that she listens to the quiet little voice, but that she can't admit it's her own. Yeah. She has yeah. to label it God's voice in order to take it seriously. Right. Apparently, she never thought of her own voice as something worth listening to, so she has to say it comes from God. Yeah. Can you talk for a second about how even thinking in that way actually destroys your relationship with yourself in a way that makes yeah. living a holy, whole, and coherent life impossible. Right, yes. You've got, um, <clears throat> pardon me, yeah, you, you've got people for whom um, your own voice doesn't matter, right? Your own voice doesn't have authority. Right. Now, what God commands us to do in no uncertain terms is to seek wisdom, Right? That's right there in the book of Proverbs. Yep. Right? Whatever you get, get wisdom, says the proverb. Um, and that means that your heart should be formed or shaped mm -hmm. in the wisdom that comes to us from Holy Scripture and especially from the gospel. And when that happens, your heart will have some, some good voices in it. They'll still be your voice, right? but they'll be good voices that are, that are wise. And you need to be able to recognize that and own that. And, and that's a really good thing. Um, Maybe here's a way to think about this. Um, all of us, I hope, have memorized the Lord's Prayer, right? We all, that's, a, that's the Word of God. We all have it in our hearts because we've learned it by heart. But when we say the prayer, whether aloud or silently, that's our own voice, right? So our own voice can give voice to the Word of God. It happens all the time. Right. It happens in good preaching and teaching and singing. That's what the Holy Spirit sounds like is the word of God dwelling richly among us, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Um, that, that's uh, first, uh, Colossians 3, I think. Right. The parallel passage is Ephesians 5, where it says, be filled with the Spirit, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And they're both uh, plural, right? You guys, be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Let the word of Christ dwell among you richly. Hmm. What does that sound like? It sounds like the good news of the gospel, getting from human voices into human ears and into human hearts, where your own inner voice can, can rejoice by, by speaking the word of God. And that's what we should recognize about how God speaks. Hmm. Um, instead, you've got this, this kind of, essentially this guilty game we play, yeah. where we try to find the voice that... that that tells us what we're supposed to do so that we don't have to take responsibility for doing it ourselves. Well, it diminishes our capacity to become responsible moral agents, which is what God is trying to do in us, right? Yeah, exactly, mm. exactly. Um, you have to say, oh, it's not me doing it, it's God. Right. right. I'm not making this decision, God's making this decision. Right, but God has not come to destroy us or to override us. I mean, I think about the great quote of St. Irenaeus who said that the glory of God is a yeah. human person fully alive. 
But if we have a theology that negates our own voices in the process, that Mm -hmm. formula actually doesn't work. We have God now just kind of godding everywhere, and we have been effectively pushed out of the picture. Right. Part of this is to understand what goes on with the commandment of God, right? Right. The commandment of God tells us to do some things, but it doesn't typically make decisions for us, Mm -hmm. right? One of the commandments of God is, hey, take these talents, use them for the kingdom, right? That means you have to make decisions about how the talents are to be used. That's right. right. And you might make some mistakes. Yep. That's okay, right? You shouldn't sin, but, but maybe you'll make the wrong kind of investment, right? But eventually you learn how to make those investments well. Right. That's called wisdom. Right. Make, you make good investments instead of bad investments in the right. kingdom. Um, because after all, God wants his children to grow up and be wise. Mm. God does not want children who are ignorant, foolish, and can't make their own decisions. Yeah. What parent, what father or mother wants their child to be unable to make their own decisions? Right. And yet we've got this theology that says, oh, I'm not making the decision. It's God who's deciding for me. Yeah. Phil, we're going to come back to this um, on how God forms our judgments by his spirit. It forms our ability to make good decisions. But I want you to say just a little bit more about the way in which God speaks to us. Uh, Um, So... Uh, this is from page three, and I love how what you're setting up here really helps us appreciate the personal way in which God talks to us. You say that the bottom line here is that God speaks to us as a person, yeah. and you can't listen to another person just by hearing what's in your own heart. Other <laughs> persons live outside of your heart, right. and right. that's where you have to listen to them. And yeah. so the Word of God is an external word to us. Yeah. God speaks to us externally, but at the same time... The scripture says that it's God by the Spirit who has come to dwell in us. So mm-hmm. it stands to reason that there is some inward way in which we are yeah. listening to the voice of God. Um, just to unpack a little bit more how you understand that, because I think I hear you saying that as the scripture comes into us, we'll yes. begin to know how to identify the voice of God inwardly, but I want to make sure that we've got you right yeah. on that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the metaphor I keep using is the voice is our own, but right. the word is God's. Mm. Think about how you know how to say the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is God's Word, but you always say it in your own voice, whether speaking it aloud or speaking it in your heart, right? It's your voice, but it's God's Word. Yep. What's happening there is that the Word of God is shaping our hearts. Yes. Um, And the Word of God shapes our hearts in two different ways. One is by law and the other is by gospel. The law tells us what to do and trains us in certain ways. Mm. But the deep shaping of our heart comes from the gospel, which gives us Christ. Mm. When we hear the story of Christ and receive his promise and take hold of it by faith and do it over and over and over again in a good liturgy, in good preaching, in hymns, day in and day out, Sunday after Sunday, our heart gets reshaped in the image of Jesus Christ. And his words and his very being shapes who we are. So that eventually our self-talk really becomes the talk of God. Yeah. Right? Because God's voice has so been overlaid on our voice. Is that kind of what you're saying? Well, think of what happens when you say, our Father who art in heaven. Right. Right? You're the one saying it. Yes. But whose word is it? Mm. Right? We call it our Lord's Prayer because it is Jesus' own words coming out of our voice in our mouth. I love that. What I hear you saying, and this it comports with my own experience with God, law and gospel. So I'm yeah. thinking about Psalm 119, the unfolding of your words gives light, it gives understanding to the simple. That yeah. the commandments as they come to dwell in us, they shape a moral imagination. 
So yeah. that when we're in whatever situation and we're unsure what to do, we have a sense of what God would say because we know what he has said and it's come to dwell in us. And that little voice in us that tells us go this way and not that way yeah. is the voice of God in our own voices. And then also on the gospel side of it, those times when we're in darkness or we don't know what to do or we have failed in some way and we're experiencing the yeah. weight of condemnation and shame, all of a sudden we hear the comfortable words of the gospel come yeah. to us. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so we know how we should feel because mm -hmm. of what God has spoken to us. Yeah. One of the phenomena that you just put your finger on is, is the, the old phenomenon that used to be called conscience. Right? Mm. Oddly enough, that's a word that seems to have dropped out of a lot of Christian vocabulary. Mm -hmm. I think it's been partly replaced by this practice of listening for God in your heart so that God will tell you what to do. Right? Um, God doesn't actually make decisions for us, right. but he has taught us what he wants. Right? Um, he has taught us to love our neighbor. He's taught us not to kill, which means to guard everything about the life of your neighbor. Not to steal, which means to, to guard the property and the reputation of your neighbor. Right. Not to bear false witness, which means to, to speak well of your neighbor. And if you have taken those words of God on board and it's, it's been shaping your heart, then your conscience is going to nag at you yep. when you're unkind to your neighbor, yep. right? when you're not caring for your neighbor's life and property and reputation. So uh, the voice of conscience is important. But then you, at the end, um, we need more than our conscience. Mm -hmm. We need this word from God himself yes. that comes to us in a certain kind of surprise all the time. You know, it's this gift of his own son, yes. right? which is better than our conscience can give us, right? Um, the, the law can give us conscience, but the gospel gives us Christ. Okay, what you're, saying right here, what, word. Yeah, what you're saying right here takes us into a later chapter. It's directly related uh -huh. to it. On, and this is, I laughed when I read this chapter because this is so much part of the water supply of the evangelical Christianity that I was raised in. Mm -hmm. You have to, through a long process of discernment and intuition and prayer and consulting with others, one thing that's very important for Christians is finding God's will for right. their life. Where am I supposed to go to college? What's my career supposed to be? Who am I supposed to marry? What city should I live in? How many kids should we have? What church should oh. I go to? How much money should I put in my 401k? And so on and so forth. And on and on and on it goes. You think that trying to find God's will for your life makes Christians anxious. And so you say, you don't have to find God's will for your life. <laughs> say something about that. Right. You don't have to find God's will for your life uh, because God has told you what his will for your life is. It's right there in scripture. You can read the Ten Commandments. That's God's will for your life. You can read um, the, the twofold law of love. Love, your, love God on your neighbor. That's God's will for your life. Yep. You should believe the gospel. That's God's will for your life. Um, or there's that wonderful passage from, um, from Malachi, right? He's told you, human being. He's told you <laughs> what, what is, is good. good right? And what does the Lord expect of you? Yep. But to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. All right. Now you know God's will for your life, right? What, what doesn't happen is that God doesn't make particular decisions for us, not as, not as a rule, because he wants us to learn to make wise decisions ourselves as responsible adults. The key example of this is young Solomon, right? Uh, soon after his father dies, Solomon becomes king, but he's a young man and he's realizing he's not good at making decisions and, and governing a whole country yet. So he prays, what, for God to make decisions for him? 
No, no. he doesn't pray for that. Right. He prays for wisdom, right? A, a wise heart that discerns between good and evil, mm-hmm. between good decisions and bad decisions. Um, he prays for that, but he also is going to have to practice it, right. right? Put it into practice. He will be like a steward, the kind of person who was given a bunch of talents, and the master does not say, I'm going to tell you exactly how to invest these talents. Right. He says, invest those talents. Learn how to, to invest them well, right? Don't bury them and wait for me to tell you what to do with them, right? So so we need to learn wisdom, and God wants us to learn wisdom. And I, I still remember a student saying, but but if I make my own decisions, I'll make mistakes. Yes. Make, yes, of course you will, right? Um God does not mind it if you grow up, which requires making some mistakes on the way. Yeah, right. sure. Right. I mean, what this is, I love how, again, uh, what I love about your book is how connected it is. So what you're really saying here is, look, God has revealed his will sure. to you. So if you immerse your mind in the scriptures, what that's going to do is that is going to form your imagination in such a way that's right. that when you come to certain forks in the road, you're going to know what to do. And even if you make mistakes, good news for you is that you've immersed your mind in yeah. the scriptures and in the gospel, and you'll know that God is a merciful God, and he's right. going to forgive you, and this is all part of the, the growing. Right. So I love all of that. Let me just play the devil's advocate here for a second. Okay. Because, uh, you, so I'm thinking of the Apostle Paul. Mm-hmm. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I was not disobedient, but I went, and so on and so forth thus launching Paul's ministry career. So uh, it seems like you might be saying, um, you know, just immerse yourself in the scriptures and then you'll just and kind of do whatever you want as God forms your imagination. But it seems like when we read the scriptures, there are times when God very definitely reveals himself to somebody or alters the life path for somebody in such a way where it's like, this is what you're going to be doing now, yeah. young man. Yeah. Uh, or young woman. Talk to us about that. Like, wh- yeah. what's the role of the specific, truly the specific will of God for us inside this? Right. Those moments when God calls us into vocation. Right. Um, yeah, there are several ways that happens. Um, what you don't see is anybody in Scripture sitting quietly and listening to the voices of their heart to find out what God is saying in their heart. Nobody suggests that that's a practice that you should use. Right? You don't find that in Scripture. You do find lots of people saying, God spoke to me. Mm-hmm. Right? We, but very often the Scripture just isn't interested in how. Right? That's not the issue. Sometimes we do a little, learn a little bit about how. So here's Paul. Well, actually, by, back then he was called Saul. He's on the road to Damascus. Uh, is he listening for God's voice in his heart? No, he's hoping to kill a lot of Christians. <laughs> right? right? And that's, that's his intention. Right, God has other other plans in mind, but it's not like Paul is listening to what's going on in his heart. It's it's Jesus from heaven. The heavens open. Jesus knocks him off his horse um, and says, um, "Why why are you kicking against the goads? What why do you think? Why are you persecuting me?" Right, and it seems like this must have been a voice that came from outside Paul's own heart because his heart was bent on killing Christians and. Here Jesus is saying, you better cut this out. Why are you persecuting me? I've got other plans for you. Right? Now, that's pretty dramatic and pretty unusual. Right? Something that happened much more usual, much more common. Um, my sister, um, her oldest son 
when he was born turned out to be blind, deaf, and, uh, and disabled. She knew at that point that her job was to love a boy who was blind and deaf and developmentally disabled. She knew that was her task, right? God didn't have to sort of speak in some special way in her heart. She was well-formed enough as a Christian uh, and with a Christian conscience to know, of course I'm going to love my son. This is going to be difficult, but this is my calling now. She knew that. Um, That kind of thing um, happens all the time. Christians recognize what their duty is. Isn't that an important word that we've kind of forgotten is duty? And, And partly that comes from circumstances, right? All of a sudden, your son is injured and disabled, and this is the one you're going to love for as long as he lives. And that's how God is speaking to you. Yeah. 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 Boy, I love that. So you're, uh, yeah, I hear you saying uh, God can and does alter our destiny and our lives, and that will happen. But what Saul was not doing was sitting around nervously wringing his hands about what the will of God was. And so if and when God wants to dramatically alter our course, he can alter our course. But the normal way in which he guides us by his will is by, well, it's Romans 12, you know, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and improve what is the will of God, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. will. Yeah. Well, I want to take you, there's so much that we could talk about. I want to skip all the way to the last chapter, chapter 10, where uh, the title of the chapter is Why Basing Faith on Experience Leads to a Post-Christian Future. And you write this, I'll just tee you up this way, but you say that Christian faith is about Christ, not about experiencing Christ. There's a Mm -hmm. difference and it matters. We put our faith in a person, not an experience. We do experience Christ in our faith and it's a very good thing, but that's not the really important thing in Christian faith or even in Christian experience. The person in whom we have faith is the really important thing in the Christian experience. I love your kind of elliptical way of handling that, because I think it's the right way of handling it. But I'll just say again, I think this is a place where a lot of people might object a little bit. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I come from the Pentecostal charismatic tradition, and one of the gifts I think that that tradition has given to the wider Christian world is that it reminded everybody that faith can't just be intellectual or formalistic. There's a person involved with this, you yeah, know? Right. So I, I help us here. You say that Christian faith yeah. is about Christ, not about experiencing Christ. There's a difference, and it matters. Right. What's, what's the difference, and why does it matter? Right. Well, a person is something different from an experience, right? Uh, and, and Christian faith is about that person. Mm-hmm. I think the, 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 the best way to think about this is in terms of what you could call the direction of attention. What are you paying attention to, right? When you fall in love... Are you paying attention to what a wonderful feeling it is? Well, then, in that case, your, your feeling is going to turn into mush pretty soon and, and get turned sour very quickly. When you fall in love, what you're paying attention to is the person you love, right? And it's not, it's not about the feeling. Or if it is, then you really don't care so much about the person. You only care about yourself and your feelings, right? Mm-hmm. So imagine... Imagine uh, a bride waiting for her bridegroom to come, right? And she wants to learn to be a good bride. How do you preach to that bride waiting for her bridegroom? Mm. Do you tell her all about the feelings she's supposed to have? Or do you tell her about her bridegroom? What does she want to hear? She wants to hear about the bridegroom. She wants to hear about the beloved. So likewise, when the gospel is properly preached, it's not all about our feelings. It's about Jesus Christ. 
And precisely that is what builds up Christian feelings and Christian experience, right? Mm. How do you teach the bride to love her bridegroom? You tell her about the bridegroom. Mm. That's what builds her up in love and faith and hope. Um, so, you know, if I want to learn to love my wife, what I think about is my wife, not about my feelings. Not about my feelings about my wife or my experience yeah. of my wife. Yeah. You say this, that the and, turn to experience is a failure because yes. it's based on a misunderstanding of how experience actually works. Focusing right. on your experience waters down your experience because experience feeds on what it experiences right. just as love feeds, feeds on news of its beloved. So I yeah. take it that all those churches out there that like to talk about their worship experience, uh, mm -hmm. you would have no small frustration with that kind of language. <laughs> I, yeah, I have some frustration with that. Um, in particular, I think it, it makes people anxious. Because imagine going to a, a church where they have worship experiences, and you don't feel you don't feel very worshipful that day, mm -hmm. right? I've had that experience, and what are you supposed to do? Do you fake it? Um, do you feel like you're not really a Christian because you're not feeling the things you're supposed to feel? Right? You you don't have any good options, right? So one of the nice things about the intellect, um, as opposed to feelings, is the intellect is about truth. And you get to hang on to the truth even if you don't happen to feel very good about it that day, right? Now, usually intellect and feeling work together, right? Right. You take hold of the truth of the gospel and it, and it makes you glad. That's the normal thing. But sometimes, for instance, you might be depressed. You might be sick, right? You might be able to hang on to the truth but not feel anything about it. Yeah. Depressed people often are like that, right? They, they don't have the feelings that they would like to have. Mm. Do you blame them for not having the right feelings? No, right? Let them hang on to the truth, which is the gospel. And there's a lot of courage in that. Isn't it interesting that, how that, yeah. even that, that way of approaching worship, like come to our worship yeah. experience and then a person comes in and they don't feel like they can measure up to the experience. You said there are no good options. Uh, it just like occurs to me that, that that even in its own way is like a modern form of law, isn't it? Sure, you bet, yeah. It, it, it disguises itself as, as feelings, but right. But it really is a law that you have to have the right feelings. In if order you don't to measure up to this, you're not part of the thing. You're, yeah, you're missing it, right? Like, what's wrong with me? I'm, everybody else is praising God, and I don't feel like it. What, what's the matter with me, right? Yeah, and the gospel comes along and says, well, you're a sinner. Everything is wrong with you. The whole thing is broken. <laughs> but <laughs> but right. God has given himself to you in Jesus, and he's your hope. Right. right. And that's why, you know, good worship will do that all the time, yeah. right? Good worship will point to Jesus Christ. Yes. Right? And that's why it's glad, right? Yes. But bad worship will say, you've got to be glad or else your Christian life is a wreck. So what's wrong with you? Well, I love how one of the things that you talk about towards the end of the book over and over again is you talk about how, like, why is it that we get so happy when we sing the Christmas carols? Yeah. And yeah. some of that is nostalgia, but I think a mm -hmm. lot of that is just, they're telling us the story of our beloved. You bet. And the right kinds yep. of emotions are dispelling yep. the clouds of gloom and sadness in us. Yep. And sometimes you sing Christmas carols and it doesn't move you very much. And then other times, you know, you, you, the first time you sing a Christmas carol in December, it's like, oh, like you break down weeping. It's happened to me numerous times. Like all of a sudden we're singing Christmas carols. Yep. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, my face is a faucet, I'm, you know, because yeah. I love this stuff, right? Yeah. And, and I wasn't expecting it. And yeah. and yeah, and it's just feelings, but it's the right kind of feeling, right? If, yeah. if you can manage. But sometimes you don't have the feelings, 
And that's okay too. Unfortunately, we're that's not. Okay so we're, we are justified by grace through faith, right. not by our feelings about right. any of this stuff. We right. just put our not trust in feelings. Jesus. And, and also, call it not a day. by getting every single doctrine right. You know, checking off all the boxes yep. and making sure you you've you know learned all the doctrines. Yep. So neither intellect nor feeling justifies us. That's right. right. Jesus Christ justifies us, taken hold of by faith alone. Okay, yeah. so we've got like one or two minutes left. So oh. you have a captive audience of pastors and worship leaders listening to this podcast. What do you want to say to them? Um, your job is to give people Jesus Christ. It's a lovely job. Isn't it a wonderful task, right? So study for that. Uh, enjoy it. Um, sing a lot. Uh, preach a lot. Study a lot. And be glad that you have this wonderful privilege of giving people Jesus Christ for their lives and for their salvation. I love it. Phil Carey, you are a blessing. The book is Good News for Anxious Christians, 10 Practical Things You Don't Have to Do. Thank you for the many ways in which you have liberated all of us by this book. Phil, we pray blessings on your head and a rapid healing to you. I know you're struggling with a little illness over there. Yep. Thank you very much. Glad to be with you. 